as you're turning there, I, I want you to kind of chew on a thought with me. And, and actually, maybe let's chew on it by asking this question. What exactly is the church? When I say church, if you've grown up at least in the deep south, probably all manner of things come to mind. Um, what, what is this thing called church? What does it mean? What is it for? And that's the reason really we're going through this book. We're trying to get a right and good definition of exactly what the church, that word means the gathering, right? This gathering of Christians, what exactly it is. And I'm going to put this forward and I want us to chew on this together. That Jesus in his cross creates a new humanity. That this, this thing called the church is actually meant to be a new humanity. It's a new people. It's an alternative to humanity, right? New means that there is an old. And that what Jesus does by his cross is that he brings people out of old humanity and makes a new one. And that has a couple of implications, one of those being that the church is not just another social organization. It's not a civitan club. It's not a rotary club. It's something else altogether. It doesn't exist just to give us something to do on Sundays. I imagine apart from church, we could probably find plenty of things to do on a Sunday. But that it is actually a new humanity, a distinct people who are rescued by Jesus and empowered by Jesus. And this means that we don't, that the church doesn't play ball with Babylon, right? It doesn't play by the rules of Rome. We are not meant to be ruled by our culture, nor are we meant to be ruled by the emotional hype of our day. We are meant to be led and ruled by Jesus. And sometimes that means we're in step with some things that we see around us, but other times that means we are not in step with things that we see around us. And we have to know when, we, we have to know which voices are the right ones to follow. And the cross is the primary voice. The cross is what saves us, but it is also the cross that gives us our identity and teaches us how to live. Jesus' cross is both an invitation to new life, but it's also a call to death that we have to lay down, that we have to actually kill some of those things that belong to our old way of life. And that's what the church in Corinth is struggling to do. This is a, a group of, uh, a community of Christians who keep defining themselves by the world around them, by the values of their city in Corinth. I'm going to trip over this thing if I don't move it right now. Sorry, Jennifer. All right. They keep defining themselves by the values of their city, by the values of Corinth, rather than by the things that Jesus values. They don't live a cross-shaped life, they live a Corinth-shaped life. So as we have worked our way through this letter, we ought to be challenged as well. Are we more shaped by Clanton or by Christ? Now what's interesting is only as we live for Christ will we live for Clanton. Will we be the most, we will be the most good for our city and community when we live most, uh, most like unto the cross. When the cross leads our actions. And that's, that's the message of Corinthians, that we want to be a people uh, 
who are defined by the Jesus that saves them rather than the world around us. And Paul has addressed many problems uh, that are that are going on in Corinth. And uh, primarily it's this, that they are a divided church and they are divided due to pride. There are different groups, different factions rallied around different leaders and they all want to make a name for themselves. And this is now spilling over into their worship gatherings. We looked at this last week. Paul began in chapter 11 uh, correcting some things that were being seen in their worship gatherings. And now we get to probably one of the most uh, hotly debated, if you can call Christian debates hot. Um, it's this issue of spiritual gifts. That's what Paul deals with really for the, uh, as far as a subject in the letter, he deals with this the most of all from chapters 12 to 14, this topic of spiritual gifts uh, and the abuse of those gifts in the worship of the church. It is interesting that this is still a major area of disagreement some 2,000 years later. But here's what's likely happening. Some in the church have very noticeable gifts. Right, primarily speaking in tongues, but they have very noticeable gifts and they are proud of those gifts. And they are using those gifts to actually discourage others who don't have such noticeable gifts. Right? So you have, right, you have some and their gifts are very noticeable and then you have others whose gifts are not very noticeable. And this group over here seems to be discouraging this group saying, well, we really have the spirit. You guys, I don't know what you have, but this gift, our gift, is really the mark of having the Holy Spirit. And so Paul has to address them, which he does beginning in chapter 12. So if you would turn with me there, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible, please grab uh, one from the rack in front of you. And if you don't own a Bible, we'd be glad for you to take that one home. Page 959. In the, uh, in the Pew Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Now, concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I don't want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit... The utterance of wisdom and to another, the utterance of knowledge, according to the same spirit to another faith by the same spirit to another gifts of healing by the one spirit to another, the working of miracles to another prophecy to another, the ability to distinguish between spirits to another, various kinds of tongues to another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. For just as the body is one and has many members and all the members of the body, the many are still one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews, Greeks, slaves, free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. 
For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, well, I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as He chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet. I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts don't require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all possess gifts of healing, do all speak with tongues, do all interpret, but earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. Let's pray together. God in heaven, we love to set ourselves apart and boast in the gifts that you've given us, This may be a familiar passage to many of us, Lord, so I pray that you would bring great treasure out of it, both for those who are familiar with it and those who are not. That this this metaphor, that this passage would come to life for us and teach us just how valuable we are when it comes to the body of Christ. That you have made us a new humanity in Jesus and that all of us have a role to play in that humanity, in that body. So God, would you open our eyes and our ears, would you soften our hearts, enlighten our hearts, that we may grow in your grace. We ask it in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen. So I've really got just two headings for you today. The first one is some good news. We're all charismatics. See? Got your attention there. Hey, this is a Presbyterian church. Keep your hands down. And then second, no one is expendable, right? So to these, to these two groups within the church, at least two groups, right? You've got some whose gifts we might call the miraculous gifts. They were very visible. They were very audible. It was very noticeable. And they had become to 
you know, stand on pride just a little bit. I'm so proud of the gift that I have. And maybe they were beginning to neglect others. And the group that felt neglected, maybe they were beginning to feel a sense, a sense of superiority over the others. Like, oh, well, you think you're big stuff. So to both groups, Paul says that the reason God has given gifts to the church is so that Jesus' name might be exalted. That there are variety, there is diversity in the church. There are diversity of gifts in the church so that the name of Jesus can be exalted. That's it. There are diversity of gifts. Now, as to those miracle gifts, uh, we'll get into those when it gets to chapter 14. But right now, we just need to establish this principle on the front end of why exactly God has given these gifts to the church. That's what we're doing in chapter 12, the role that they're supposed to play, all the stuff that you're just thirsting for to talk about tongues, etc. You know, two weeks. You get two weeks, we'll come back for that. All right? There are some things that control... The use of the gifts in the church. And we're going to walk through that this week and next week. So, first, we are all charismatics. What do I mean when I say we're all charismatics? Look at verse 4. Paul says there are varieties of gifts. Now, that word gifts is the word charisma. That sound familiar? It's the word charisma. Its root word is charis, which means grace. The word charisma means gifts of grace. The word charisma means gifts of grace. That same word is used in Romans 5.15 and Romans 6.23. Do you know what it's talking about there? The gift of salvation in Jesus. Eternal life in Jesus is called a spiritual gift or a gift of grace. Okay? It is a gift. So that word has pretty broad use in the New Testament. It can refer to these specific gifts that Paul lists, lists here. It refers to marriage and singleness. Back in 1 Corinthians 7, marriage is a gift and singleness is a gift. Same word. Salvation is a gift. So Paul and God use that word a lot more broadly sometimes than we want to use it. But... The word means it's a gift of grace. And I want you to, to notice a couple of things in verse 7. Paul says, To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. A couple of things I want you to notice about that. First is no one gets left out when it comes to the giving of gifts. No one is left out. Paul says, To each to each individual, to each person is given a manifestation, a revealing of the Spirit. He says the same thing later in verse 11, right? That the Holy Spirit empowers and apportions to each person spiritual gifts as he wills, right? So some may have more, some may have less, some may have this gift, some may have that one. But no one is left out. Everyone receives a charisma. So congratulations, if you're a Christian, you're a charismatic. All right? Everybody has received a charisma. Everybody received a gift of grace. Second thing I want you to notice about in verse 7, they are all for the common good. Every gift that God gives to His people is meant to serve the people. 
is meant to serve the good of the church and the cause of Christ. They are not for our individual uh, reputations. We don't get to stand on our gifts and say, look at me. Paul says the gifts are given so that the church can be built up. It is for the good of the church. So where do these gifts come from? That's what he tells us in verse verses 4 through 6. And I want you to notice, Paul gets a little poetic here. He's, he's, he's making some parallel statements, right? He says, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, or we could say there, there are varieties of workings, but the same God works in them. What's Paul doing, right? He's showing us that the Trinity, that this diversity of gifts, this variety of gifts and service comes from the triunity of God. That the Trinity is what gives gifts to the church. So variety of gifts, the Spirit, variety, they're, they're, they're parallel statements showing that this beautiful diversity comes from God Himself, who is diversity. God is diversity in His being. He is a trinity. He is one and he is many, right? He is one and he is three. D.A. Carson makes this point, which I think is, is really apropos. He says, isn't it interesting that when God creates a snowstorm, each and every snowflake is absolutely different. You've probably heard that before, right? That when it snows, no two snowflakes are, at, are, are exactly alike. They're all different. So in the unity of the snow, there is a beautiful diversity of snowflakes. That's what God does when he freezes water, right? What do we make when we freeze water? Ice cubes. And they all look the same, right? So when God creates, he creates diversity. And it is that diversity that exists for his glory, right? We make everything look the same. And we kind of like that, don't we? Isn't that our struggle? That when we, when we want to impose our will on something, we want to make it look like us. What is it that makes me comfortable? What is it that, what is it that fits in my box, right? Cause that don't, don't get, don't get me wrong. I have a very Kevin shaped box. Uh, you know, I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, Jennifer is stepping down as music director and, you know, one of the great joys of having her on staff has been that her very type A, straight-laced personality has really brought along my laid-back, uh, what's that, type B? I don't know. Um, right? But that in that, in that diversity of gifts, if, if you're, if you're new to Grace, you need to know that I am not laid-back, right? I'm a little bit over the top. So, um, Jennifer is a great gift to the staff of our church, right? There's a, uh, there is a diversity of gifts that exalts the name of Jesus, that brings glory to God. God creates diversity, not uniformity, and He does so even in the gifts that He gives to the church. He goes on, right? He lists uh, several gifts. Look at verse 8. He talks about uh, the Spirit giving the utterance of wisdom, the utterance of knowledge, faith. Uh, this is maybe a special kind of faith, not saving faith, but uh, but faith that... Um, that aims for a particular goal not promised in Scripture. He mentions gifts of healing, working of miracles, prophecy. Some of these things we'll look at in coming chapters. The ability to discern between spirits, various kinds of tongues, interpretations. The point, uh, a couple of things I want to just mention in passing about that list. There are several of these lists in the New Testament. 
And they're just about all different, right? Uh, they are not exhaustive. You know, one of the things that I think we'll find out when we get to heaven, and I think even like every time, so part of uh, part of the membership process at Grace Fellowship is we actually give you a spiritual gifts test, right? Uh, which I partly I think the Apostle Paul would be in heaven like, really? You're going to do that? That's not what I, that's not what I meant, right? Where we list out all these gifts and we get you to take your best shot at what you think your gifts are, okay? Um, for some reason, I don't think that's what the Holy Spirit intended, but we do it anyway. Um, it can be a helpful exercise, but I think sometimes we maybe bank on the list a little bit too much. Well, these are my top five gifts and then the other three gifts. And by the way, just kind of in passing also that something humorous, very few people seem to have like the gift of prayer. Nobody thinks they're good at that. Everybody thinks they're good at cutting the grass. You know? Um, I'm happy to serve a meal. Please don't ask me to pray for anything. Right? Um, so these are not exhaustive lists. Uh, I don't think that's what Paul intends. He's not, there's not like a set list of 20 spiritual gifts and you get six of them. Okay? Uh, that's not what Paul is doing. He's simply just saying, here's the variety of things that God gives to his church for all kinds of different purposes. All right? Um, what he is trying to get across is that it is the Spirit, verse 11, that energizes them all. It is the Spirit who makes them to be useful. It is the Spirit who energizes them, and it is the Spirit who apportions them as he sees fit. So you don't get to go, like, we don't have a gift shop set up next door that you can walk through and say, uh, I'd like two of those and one of those, right? That's not how this works. God in his sovereignty says, here are the gifts I'm going to give the church, and this is how I'm going to spread it out, right? They come from God, they're energized by God, but everybody gets one. What do we do with that? What, how do we apply that today? One way is if God is the source and the activity behind the gift, right? If, if they are truly gifts of grace, then we cannot boast about them. We don't get to stand on them and say, well, look at me. I've got really amazing gifts. You should listen to me, right? They're not, they're not called gifts of me, right? They're called gifts of grace. They come from God Himself, right? And to brag about it would, you know, you're the kid who's bragging about what his parents got him for Christmas. Don't be that kid. Nobody likes that kid, right? Don't brag about what you had nothing to do with. That is, that is, that is counter to grace. Grace gives lavishly and freely. We have no right to stand on that or boast in that. But we do that all the time, don't we? We take something that we had absolutely nothing to do with and we develop some pride around it, right? Uh, it's, a, it's, it's such a part of... We, we almost kind of believe that we really earned it, that we've worked for it. And we make it a point of personal pride. And what Paul is saying is, that's not yours, I gave it, God is saying, I gave it to you for my praise. You don't get to boast about it and praise yourself because of it. Okay? So that's point one. We're all charismatics, meaning we all, we all have a gift of grace. We didn't, it doesn't belong to us. It's ours, but it doesn't belong to us and it's for God's glory. But here's the second part. It's what Paul does in the next section 
Again, because there are these divisions in the church, he says, no one is expendable. Everyone's gift is important. There are not some that have greater glory and those that have lesser. No one is expendable. Right? So in verse 14, he speaks to those who feel excluded, to those who feel left out, to those who probably want to withdraw. Right? So in this passage, we're we're talking to the people maybe who feel insecure. So if that's you, this is, this is your opportunity to, to, to listen up, that you feel, man, I don't know that I really belong. I don't know that, I, I, don't, I don't think I fit in here. I just need, I just need to withdraw. I need to hide the gift. I need to, I need to get away from the church. And Paul says, no, no, we, we need you and you cannot leave. All right. Verse 14. The body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot, should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, that wouldn't make it any less a part of the body. The foot does not get to withdraw, right? My right foot does not get to get mad at me for not giving it the honor it deserves and take a holiday, okay? The foot is still as much a part of the body. If the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body, in fact, if the whole body were an eye, I want you to, th- I want you to think about that. It sounds like something out of a horror movie, doesn't it? Kind of grotesque, this idea of just a big floating eye. Right? We're grossed out by that. The whole body is not an eye. The eye is, the eye is not the most important part of the body. The eye is just a part of it. Where would be the sense of hearing if the whole body were an ear? Where would be the sense of smell? As it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. There's that idea of God apportioning gifts. If all were a single member, where would the body be? What's his point? That God has given our church, this church, every gift, every member that it needs. And not one among us... This is my, this is my word to those of us who maybe feel insecure, like we don't have a role to play or a part. We need you. And if you feel unneeded, then we need to address that and figure out where the, where the issue is. No one here is unnecessary. There are no, there are no appendixes here, okay? Hey, and as it turns out, maybe the appendix does actually play a function in the body. So, there you go. It's not just an extra organ. Okay? Um, Everyone here, everyone that is a part of this body is necessary. Please don't give in to the feeling that you are insignificant or insecure. Don't withdraw. Lean in. It may be that someone's not asking. That's okay. Lean in. Somebody's not always going to ask. There is a role, there is a place for you to serve. And it is necessary for our body to function in a healthy way. And we want to help every member of the church recognize that role. And on that subject, this whole idea of spiritual gift testing, etc., the best way to learn what gifts you have is probably not by taking a test, but actually by serving. By actually doing. 
Right? It's trial and error. If you get into it and you realize, well, you know, maybe this is not my gift. Right? That's okay. I'm fine with that. You can back out and we can try something else. Okay? So the best way to discern spiritual gifting, this, what, what gift of grace do I have, is to try one out. Try, try a few out. And if it's not you, okay, we'll do something else. Right? But everybody has a gift of grace and, and all of them are necessary. Then Paul addresses those maybe who feel overly important. Verse 21. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Paul's looking at those people who think, well, you know, I've got the gift of tongues. He has the gift of administration. (laughs) He's not as spiritual as I am, right? Paul says, no, 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 no. You don't get to look at anybody in Jesus' church and say, you're not necessary. I have no need of you. There is need for every gift. Paul says, on the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are actually indispensable. Those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. Our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty. God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. And then I love this, verse 26. If one member suffers, all suffer together. What happens when you, uh, when you smash a finger with a hammer? Do you just look at that finger and go, you better stop. Don't do it. Right? No, of course not. Right? Not necessarily focusing on what comes out of your mouth, though there probably is some exclamation there, right? You grab the finger with your other hand, your muscles of your upper body at least tense, right? There are pain signals going back and forth. Our body, our entire body reacts to pain. Right? If you get something in your eye, what does your hand do? It rushes to your eye, right? Protection. Uh, figuring out how you can get tears flowing so that, that whatever's in there can come out. Your body is designed to respond to pain. That if one member of the body is suffering, the rest of the body moves into protective mode. God says, Paul says, that's, that's what the church is designed to do. That when one suffers, we are meant to suffer together. You would not cut off your toe simply because someone stepped on it. We rush to protect. And we rush to honor. That we honor one another. It's not just about suffering, but also about honoring one another in the body. That when one member is honored, right, we honor it all together. Think of, um, let's see, let's come up with a good example, a good illustration. You know, it's football season, so we'll go with that. We honor athletes, right? And we'll say things like, man, I can't say his name. Isn't Tua's arm amazing? Now, what are we doing? Are we honoring Tua's arm? Are we going to take a picture of his arm? Are we going to bronze it and make a statue of it? No, when we say that Tua Tagovailoa, I think I got that right, that his arm is amazing, really we're talking about him as an athlete, him as a whole person. We're honoring him, okay? 
Fred's voice. Isn't Fred's voice amazing? Right? We're honoring Fred's voice, but Fred's voice can't do Fred's voice apart from Fred. Alright? We're on, we have to honor him as a whole. In the same way, right, the body of the church ought to respond in honoring those members. Uh, and I would say, especially those members that aren't as public. Right? Uh, it's easy to notice the preacher. Because for some strange reason, we give the guy a mic and let him stand on the stage and talk for 30 minutes. Okay? It's easy to honor the public gifts, the noticeable gifts. We also need to honor those private gifts, the unseen, the behind the scenes, right? Those gifts, those people need honoring as well. Last week, a number of, uh, a number of people went with our youth group up to Mentone. Uh, some of those very same people are key parts of our Sunday morning machinery. Okay, they play different roles. And, of course, we don't realize it until they're gone that it's like, oh, who's going to do that? And who's going to do that? And who's going to do that? Right? We need to honor those people who fill in those gaps that make church life together what it is. And so this is my opportunity to say thank you Now, some of you like to remain behind the scenes. You don't want your name mentioned. But we need to do a better job of saying thank you. So thank you to those of you who work in behind the scenes, who pull all the levers, who wipe down the tables, who take out the trash, who make everything here work even without being noticed. So here's my applause to you. Thank you for making my job as pastor um, much easier and much more enjoyable. So for those who feel excluded, you're necessary. For those who feel overly important, it's time to take a step down and realize that there are others uh, whose gifts are just as valuable to the church. But Paul actually says the most important thing first. And we're going to close on this thought. Paul says the most important thing first. Verse 1. Concerning spiritual gifts, brothers... And sisters, I don't want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. What's Paul saying? What's his point? What's the main thing? In the church, there were those, and still are those, who say, well, the sign of the Holy Spirit's work is this gift. And Paul says, no. The sign of the Holy Spirit's work is that you are, you used to be led by the nose to worship gods which are not gods. You used to worship mute idols. And because of the Holy Spirit, you have been led from that, from saying Jesus is a curse, saying Jesus is Lord. That's the main thing. That because of the Holy Spirit, the sign of the Spirit's work in your life is that your relationship to Jesus is different. Where you used to curse Jesus and ignore Jesus and not believe in Jesus, now Jesus is Lord. Jesus is God where used to be, there was another God on the throne of your heart. The sign of the Holy Spirit's work is that Jesus is the Lord and Savior of your life. That is the main thing. The sign of the Holy Spirit is not speaking in tongues. 
The sign of the Holy Spirit is not teaching. The sign of the Holy Spirit at work in your life is that you are no longer led to worship false gods, but that you can say joyfully and gladly that Jesus is Lord. That's the sign of the Holy Spirit at work in your life. The question is, can you say that this morning? As you look at your life, can you say, yes, Jesus is Lord? Can you gladly and joyfully say that I no longer want to worship the false gods around me? Right? So in Corinth, they were different than in Clanton. But in Clanton, we still have false gods, the idols of materialism, the idols of nationalism, whatever the idol it is that captures your heart, the idol of pleasure and indulgence, right? That you're able to look at all of those idols and say, no, Jesus is Lord. I am His and He is mine. If you can say that, then that is the sign of the Holy Spirit at work in your life. If you cannot say that this morning, then I invite you to come to the Lord Jesus. I invite you to lay down your life and come to His cross. Lay your deadly doing down, as the hymn says. Give your life over to Jesus and believe in Him. Yes, the cross is an offer. Uh, The cross is an instrument of death, but it is also an invitation to a new life. If you would have that new life this morning, I invite you to trust in the Lord Jesus and talk to me after the service. Let's pray. God in heaven, more important than what gifts we have, more important than how it is we come together and worship you with whatever talents and gifts that you've given us, most important, Lord God, is that we have the gift of eternal life in Jesus. The rest will be portioned out by you as you see fit. So God in heaven, this morning I pray first that we would believe, that we would trust in you as Lord, and that you would grace, cause us to see the gifts of those around us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Before we have our giving moment, I'm going to invite... Oh, he's right here. It's like he just shows up all of a sudden. Zach is going to share a little bit with us about uh, about the youth trip to Minton last week. Now, some of you got terrified. I was up here to give a solo, but don't worry. It's just for the youth trip. Um, so, Kaylee, if you would click to that next slide real fast. Um, so, just want to give you a brief recap of our Minton trip. We just got back this past Monday. Uh, and so, I, I tell them all the time, they are a community within our community. They are as much a part of the church as you and I are. And so I want you as the church to know what's going on in our youth ministry. That's a group picture we took as we were leaving. We took 25 people. Uh, 21 of those were students, uh, grades 7 through 12. It was a wonderful trip. I can honestly 